Welcome to Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will bring you an inspiring person to help you improve in all areas of your life. We'll be chatting with friends old and new who have incredible stories and experiences to share. We'll be listening to some of their obstacles and how they've shown resilience to overcome them. Each episode should give you value and influence and inspire you to your greatness. So welcome to episode number four of the Making It Happen podcast and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by a personal friend of mine and someone who has probably brought my communication skills, my presentation skills and increased my overall performance I'd say when dealing with clients, um, the wonderful Eric Fitzpatrick. So thank you so much for being here. Just, I'd love to, I'll do, I'll try and do a little to adjust this in your intro. Um, so Eric Fitzpatrick, if you don't know him, is an author of Persuade on Purpose, um, which is a great book I'm only getting dug into at the moment. So I should have done my research and done it all beforehand. But um, Eric, you have ARC speaking and training now. You work with organizations massive corporates across the world some of the biggest is it okay if i name some of them uh yes yeah please do. so kellogg's vhi hubspot i'm sure you're going to mention a lot more as we go on through the interview um i'd love to start and go back a little bit i try and do that most of the guests before you started your own business and you were coaching and helping organizations on communications and presentations where did that journey begin you were working in a corporate job yourself there is a defining moment, Tom, back in September of 2003. And I was working for a company in England, although I was based over here. And my boss promised me a brand new car and then reneged on the promise. And he phoned me on a Monday morning and he broke the promise. On the Wednesday, a client who was guaranteed a really big order and my commission that would have been really sizable phoned to say that the order had fallen through. And then to compound the week, to ruin the week completely. On the Saturday, my wife dragged me into town to go shopping. <laughs> but while I was in there, I came across a book by a fellow called Brian Tracy, entitled Be a Sales Superstar. Wouldn't recommend it to anybody today, but it was perfect for me at the time. And I set about putting together... What I thought at the time was a plan to put my boss in a position where he would not be able to refuse the car 12 months later. But in reality, I was going on a personal development journey. And what happened was, over the next 12 months, I grew sales in Ireland by 40% for this UK company, when sales in the UK remained completely flat. And at the end of the year, my boss said, you better tell us what you did. And I went over and I shared ideas with them. And the following year, their sales went up by 30%. And at the end of that, that's when I went, I like this. Sharing ideas, people benefiting from them, and people actually listening to me while I'm talking. There was a huge benefit to that as well. And did you always love being in front of people? Or was it your sales team that... Tom, I'm an introvert. Okay. Um, it's not my natural state to get out in front of people. I've got to work very, very hard at it. But what I've found down through the years is that the more you do something, the more comfortable you get with it. And certainly... When I'm coaching people on presentations and pitches, the more we can coach them to get comfortable with their content, they benefit from it going forward. But also, um, just the idea of getting in front of people and forcing myself to do it. I think everybody should work in sales at some stage. Yeah, Really do. Sales is everything. It's, 
I think it's incredible. The life lessons are incredible. Whether it's having to put yourself out there, whether it's being resilient, whether it's picking yourself up after a customer has said no to you. It's being responsible for yourself because you're the only person who's going to make things happen and, and influence clients. It's learning how to construct language to get people to take the actions you would like them to take. There is so much to be said for it, and I think everybody should be involved in it at some stage. And so when that light of the fire happened um, and those series of events and you invested and you educated yourself, did you go, this is for me? I need to jump out on my own and I want to coach other people or was it a hard transition? No, what, what I did at the time was, and, and, I, and I tell two stories. When, when this bug hit, the thought that went through my mind was I want to become so good at something that I would be known for it. That I wanted to become brilliant at something. I no idea quite what that was. And I ended up buying an average of 10 books a month from Amazon, trying to absorb as much information as possible. And at the end of the year, when I looked back, I realized the thing that I'd become really, really good at was buying books on Amazon. <laughs> but I, I think what happens, as you, as you well know, every time you invest a little bit in yourself, whether it's books, whether it's CDs, whether it's courses, you pick up nuggets or two and you just continue to grow. And I think that was what happened for me. And it still took another five years before I went out on my own. Because within that company, I saw a route to actually owning the business. And I got to a point where I was the second largest shareholder in that particular business, which at the time was turning over about six million quid a year. So it was a nice business to be part of at the time. And when you're back to the presentation skills, Toastmasters was... A big part of your life where you introduce yourself to them well it, it, it kicked in at the same time because in december of 2003 i was in england to deliver two presentations and they went so horribly wrong that i realized i had to do something about it i tell the story in the book at the end of the first presentation i sat down the guy next to me nudged me and went well done shergar yeah and i looked at him, what do you mean well done shergar i think he was going to say that i'd raced through my presentation yeah. but you know how horses count by clapping their foot that's what I was doing for 25 minutes during that presentation. Okay. In the afternoon, I stood up to deliver the second presentation. And of course, the first thought that went through my head was, don't move your feet, whatever you do. But I had a pen, a standard Bic Biro, and I forgot to put it down on the table. So for 20 minutes, it was in my left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. 20 minutes in, it was in both hands. And suddenly, snap. And this shard of plastic went shooting out across the room. There were 13 people in the room that day, Tom, and I hit our 75-year-old CEO who'd flown in from America oh, that morning. Way. And at that point, I went, I think I need to get better at doing this. Okay. So for me, Toastmasters was the starting point. And Eric, if no one knows about Toastmasters, would you explain what that is? I think per people have heard the name, especially me from the outside. I was like, Toastmasters improved speaking. It, it, it lists itself today as both a communication and leadership organisation. Its real strength, in my opinion, is in helping people to become better speakers, whether that's somebody who has a fear of speaking and wants to overcome it, or somebody who is a good speaker and wants to reinforce their skills. For me, what they do is they give you really, really solid foundations. And I think it's no different to building a house. If the foundations are right, you have a chance of building something that will stand tall. If the foundations aren't right, it will crumble. 
Toastmasters, if people stay there for long enough and they put the time and effort in, they get a lot of really good things from it. And did it become an addiction then? You oh. say when you talk about from the hitting your boss in the face and then Toastmasters and the books and the self-education. The, the speaking became an addiction, I think. Um, the average life of a Toastmaster is only about 18 months. I've been there for about 14 or 15 years, so maybe it is an addiction. Um, but I think as part of it, it's, not, it's no longer just about the learning. It's also about the social fabric of it because I've made some very, very good friends down through the years and um, there's a lot of people within the organisation that I can go to on occasions to share information with or to gather information from. So, yeah, it's a hugely valuable information organisation. And Eric, when you started speaking, how did you take that and turn it into a business? Well, from the speaking perspective, um, it evolved. I was a year in Toastmasters and I was asked to give a closing keynote speech at a conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the only way I knew how to get through the 30 minutes was to memorize everything word for word. On the day if anybody had sneezed, I was screwed. Today, I would have a set of notes. I would have a, a thread that would allow me to plot my way through the talk. And I'd be very, very comfortable going off script if it benefited the audience. But it is part of a journey. It, it, it takes... I, I was talking on the phone yesterday to a lady called Patricia Fripp. She's a very highly regarded uh, speaker coach in the USA. And one of the things that we agreed on is that when it comes to people wanting to become better speakers, they vastly underestimate the amount of time required to do so. And in my case... I remember, remember in 2006 taking part in one of the speech contests that Toastmasters had. And, and the way it evolved, I won at the club level, I won at the area level. And when I got to the division, I had convinced myself I was going to go on and become the world champion of public speaking. And what happened was, I got beaten in the division contest. And not only did I get beaten, I was so far behind everybody else. It was almost embarrassing. The way I tell it, there were seven contestants and I was so far behind everybody else, I finished about 12th, right? And I remember at the time walking away from that contest going, oh my God, these people are so much better than I am and there is so much more, or sorry, there's so, and, and there's nothing more that I can learn. At the time, I didn't realise how little I knew and how much I had to learn. And that's been the great thing about Toastmasters for me. It's provided me with this platform to develop and grow and eventually to actually walk away from this business that I owned to set up ARC back in 2009, 2010. And do you notice that maybe when you're going into organisations, do you notice they just want the magic pill? <laughs> like, I'm going to get one session and I'm going to be 100% better as a speaker. Is that what you're seeing out yeah. there? Can, can I book you for an hour? You can. What would you like to achieve in an hour? Because I don't have this magic dust to sprinkle. No, nobody does. Um, but that is what people often expect. I've been doing a bit of work with somebody recently. Um, we've already had five or six sessions. And she said to me on occasion, she said, I never fully realised how much time is required to get this to the level I want to get it to. I look back on to when I was doing some presentations and I was the PowerPoint heavy guy. I was Mr. Click, Click, Click. And now if I'm doing any speaking event or I it's I don't even use PowerPoint anymore. 
I used that as a crutch. I yes. did. I was, if I forget, I can use this yeah. PowerPoint slide to get back and get back on track. Yeah. And now I see it as a distraction. Do you see that when you're mm. going into organizations that, or PowerPoint, or what's your opinion on PowerPoint? It, well, first of all, it is an absolutely brilliant tool, but it gets blamed for the fact that the people who use it use it incorrectly. And exactly as you said, very often people use it as their set of notes to remind them of what they want to talk about. And the fact is, it is a visual support of the message we want to deliver. And my argument has always been that as a presenter, we should be able to present our message without PowerPoint, but use it if it will support or enhance that message. And too often people use it in the wrong way, particularly with bullet points. I remember one year down in Cork at a particular organisation down there. And for all intents and purposes, it was like the guy that I was working with. His challenge was, could he fill every blank space on each slide? And then when it came to delivering his presentation, before I started coaching him, he would stand looking at the slides and then reading everything off the slides. So yeah, it's a great tool used correctly, but most people don't. And part of the problem, Tom, is when it comes to giving presentations, people often don't have an awful lot of time to prepare them. You've been asked to give a presentation on Friday, but work gets in the way Wednesday and Thursday, so you're doing something late on Thursday night. The easiest thing to do is to create slides that will allow you to plot your way through your talk. And that's where it starts to go wrong for people. It's interesting you said that. I was working at an event recently, and there was a guy on after me, and I won't mention his name, and he had 147 slides. <laughs> and his talk went over and he had to click through them super fast because he was short on time mm. and it was it was my mind was blown it just gave me a lesson to go wow less is more so eric take me back to you came in 12th position of seven as you mentioned <laughs> was it just head down do presentations learn from everyone moving forward yeah i i i put what I would reflect on as a huge amount of time, money and energy wanting to try and become as good as I could. And for me, one of the great things about Toastmasters was this World Championship of Public Speaking Contest because that was something to aim for. And it meant that I remember weekends and it was literally five, six hours on a Saturday, five, six hours on a Sunday and I was listening to CDs, I was watching videos, I was taking speeches apart, I was looking to put them back to, together, trying to find out what somebody would do or somebody would say so that an, an audience would laugh or you could feel the emotional connection with the audience. And it was constant learning, evaluation, and then test and make better upon, you know, having evaluated what would, what had been tested. Um, and yeah, a huge amount went into it. And after the Cincinnati gig and you start working away, how important was your network to get introductions to other clients or was it word of mouth that helped you grow? When I, when I look at the business today from a speaking person, and my business, as you know, is speaking, training and speaker coaching. When I look at it today, I can actually trace a lot of it back to some free speeches that I gave early on when I started out. Organizations like the Sales Institute or the Executive Institute, as they are now, uh, I'm very grateful to them for the opportunities that they gave me to speak in front of their clients. But they were the right type of clients. And it meant that some of their people left those speeches and went back to their office and said to their bosses, 
we could do with getting this guy in. Or sometimes it would be those organisations getting in touch with whether it was the Sales Institute or whether it was Charter Accountants Ireland or whether it was some of the other organisations I've worked with saying, we're looking for training in this particular area. Is there somebody you can recommend? And I think the nature of what we do, and what you do is no different, if we deliver, that's when people sit up and take notice. 100%. I, I can stand in front of anybody and say to them, I'm a great coach or I'm a great speaker. It means nothing until they see you in action. Yeah. I, I remember when I was starting out and I did a couple of free sessions, pro bono sessions, and my biggest thing was, can I get a testimonial mm. or an image or something or a lead to the next client? And I, I, I even think, I see today, I was chatting to very good relation to mine who owns a business um, and he had some people in doing some intern work recently and they just expected the job after the week. Mm. And I, it's funny, we were talking about coffee earlier and I wanted to learn about coffee when I was younger and a friend of mine owned the coffee shop and I went and worked for him for four hours every Monday morning free just to learn how to use the machine and get a little bit of a coffee. Yeah. Now I have a knowledge about coffee. Yes. But I think there's, I admire that hustle of, and people don't see that sometimes. I, I remember years and years ago I, when I was working for the company in England and w one of the girls who was working for the, in the, for the organisation, her name was Louise, and Louise was one of these people who had learned early on that she was going to do above and beyond what was asked of her and that somewhere along the line she would get a reward for it. And I think there's two types of people. There are the people who go, give me more money and I'll do more work. And there's people who go, I'm going to do the work and it'll get recognised and I'll get the benefits of that. I'll get the recognition for it. And I think they're the people who, who progress. And it's interesting, I met a, met a lovely lady yesterday. Her name is Stephanie Woolard. Well worth checking out. She's over here until October and she has an incredible story to tell. She's been recognised by the UN. She's been recognised by uh, Australian government and given their equivalent of an OBE or something like that yeah. for some of the work that she, charitable work that she's done. But she was saying that at one stage she decided she wanted to learn from leaders. So she got in touch with an organisation and said, can I come in for a couple of weeks? Can I shadow some of your executives and see what they're doing so that I can learn from them? Was prepared to put herself out in terms of doing it for free, doing it for and giving up her time, all for the purpose of seeing what she could learn and work out, um, listening and shadowing these people. I heard a great story recently of Prince um, who recently passed away and he had no money for studio time. So he used to be the janitor for the studio to get hours in the boot mm. when he was trying to record music. And I was like, for me, that drives me and gives me power and stuff like that. It's very inspiring. So, Eric, the book, how did that come mm. about? Was it your dream ambition to publish a book or tell us a little bit about well, that? Like, like a lot of people, you know, there's this story about us all having a book in us. And at some stage, I wanted to be able to say that I had written a book. The, thing, the big thing then was, if I was going to write something about presentations, it had to be something different because the world really didn't need another book on presentations. There's more than enough of them out there. So I probably took four years to write it. But if I'm honest, Tom, that was 18 months longer than I should have. And that was simply because of the fear of having it produced and out there. Because once it was out there, it would be judged by people. And by extension, I would be judged. So I kept putting it off and putting it off. I was very, very lucky. I was delivering a day's training down in Cork and one of the people who was on the course happened to be 
um, the PR lady for Mercier Press. And I happened to tell her my story, I have in the book, and she went back to her office and she said to the people, in the, her words, she said to the people in the office, if the book is half as good as the course he's just delivered, this will be worth having a conversation. So I went down and had a conversation with them. They decided to run with it. And I have to say, again, very grateful to them because once they took up the reins, they gave me deadlines and they went, we need this by such and such a date and this. And if we get them, we'll be able to launch in February of 2017. If not, you're going to put us behind. Yeah. And there was a woman down there called Wendy. And if Wendy wanted something by the 9th of August and I hadn't got it to her, on the 10th of August at 9 o'clock in the morning, there was an email saying, where is my latest draft? And that was fabulous because it just kept me on track. The other person who ultimately became really, really helpful was one of my daughters, Amy, because she, she's very big into writing and English and language and all of that. And she said to me one day, <coughs> she said, Dad, just write something every day. Because the danger was, Tom, I'd write something today, I'd write for an hour, and then you mightn't get anything for about a month. And she said, just write something every day. So what I committed to doing was writing for 15 minutes every day. And once I had that, sometimes those 15 minutes actually turned into the hour. But it meant that there was something being put on paper every single day. And the big thing about the book for me is, or the, the differentiator about the book is, I've created a template so that people can use for constructing presentations or pitches and it just makes it much easier because often people have so many ideas and they've so much content and often when they're going to create a presentation they're experts they've so they've too much material and the challenge is working out what to put into a 10 15 20 minute presentation the template allows you to work that out very very easily and then the other thing that became a differentiator is i've created a scorecard for presentations and pitches because, as you've made reference to, we've all sat through presentations that have bored us to death. And all I wanted to do was look at the elements in presentations that either help you get your message across or hinder getting your message across. And all I did was I put them into a scorecard and I measured them against four criteria and it allowed me to create this scorecard. In one case, I took it into one organisation who gave me three presenters who were delivering an average of 100 presentations per year each. And on the scorecard originally, they scored minus 320. Wow. Wow. Um, Eric, you talked about people being in the audience. Mm. And part of the person who helped you publish this book was in the audience. I think when I started presenting, I used to always think it was about me, me, me. How, and now I flip that, it's all about the audience. How important is whoever you're speaking to? It's all about the audience, as you just said, Um they're the only one that matter. We, we, we focus on ourselves because we're nervous. We focus on ourselves because we want to be perfect. And the fact is, perfection is not the aim. I'd like to think sitting here, there have been times I've delivered what I would like to think were some brilliant presentations. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. Ultimately, and, and my view is, if you're in front of 100 people someday speaking, and at the end of it, one person walks away with one new idea and they benefit from that, that's the job done. Very often, and I'm sure you've experienced this, you're in front of 100 people and there's one person sitting in the corner who, who has this real scowl on their face and you're looking at them and you get focused on them and you want to try and convert them into somebody who's enjoying the presentation. Today, if I'm in a room with somebody like that, I ignore them and I focus on the other 99. And as I said, it's all about them. And 
I think from my perspective, one of the things that helped me enormously when it came to speaking was having a training background. Because, as you know, with training, it's got to be interactive. And I've tried to apply that to some of my speaking. I can do a 30-minute a talk and I can have at least two very, very strong and deliberate audience engagement techniques in it purely designed to make sure that they come on that journey and they don't get bored and switch off halfway through or something like that 100%. so it's all about them all about the audience and eric when you go back to you had a percentage of the company and i would have said a comfortable job that's what i'm looking for was there nervous about doing your own thing and stepping in on your own was that a big yeah i mean at the time my daughters were still in school they hadn't quite got to college age yet so all of it we had a mortgage and um, we had other commitments as people do and there's always an element of what the thinking of what if this goes wrong but the way i viewed it was it was something i had to do and failure would only have been not trying this now i did it 2009 2010 when the recession was in full flow and I was lucky that I was able to find a couple of clients who were able to give me regular business. Um, but today I'm getting the benefit of the work that I did back then because I knocked on a lot of doors. I gave a lot of free speeches. But was it nerve-wracking on occasions? Yes. Were there, were there occasions when I was at home in my office sitting there going, what the hell have I just done? But, and we've had this conversation before today, absolutely love what I do and wouldn't change any of it and even the journey there were a lot of really good lessons learned along the way um the need to to plan i, I should have planned would have planned if i was doing it again i would plan differently um what i do well today i would like to think two things one i walk away from 10 percent of my business every year the bottom 10 percent doesn't matter who they are i make a decision they're either not giving me enough business or they're too much hassle to do business with or they take too long to pay and I walk away from them. And what I have found is it frees up time and energy to find a newer, a new client and a better client. The other thing is every quarter I take a morning and I go to one of the local hotels near where I live and I sit down and I spend the morning asking and answering three questions. And those questions are, what am I doing that I need to keep doing? What am I doing that I need to stop doing? because we all get the habits of doing bad things. And then the third question is, what am I not doing that I need to start doing? So to give an example, August, I have very little in the diary for August at this moment in time, and that's deliberate, because I want to spend at least a couple of weeks creating online programs, because that's one of the next journeys that I want to take for my business. Yeah. I. It's very interesting you make that point about... Um, I think I was conditioned when I started my business I think I wanted to work with everyone and I think I wanted to keep everyone happy and if someone had knocked on the door and offered me any money very small amounts I'd have worked with them because that's the feeling I had yeah. now I have a totally flipped different perspective on it. I'm like who do I want to work with because there, as you mentioned there are clients that are going to drain you and we're not supposed to work with everyone no um, we're not absolutely not but I don't think there's enough people talking about that I think everyone has this smiley happy face we're all supposed to work with everyone you know I, I think I think what happens is particularly when you work for yourself particularly when you're in a service industry it's very easy to give an impression of how well your business is doing and people don't necessarily know how well your business is doing 
And that means that on occasions you can appear to be very busy, but perhaps it's not for the right money. Or you can be dealing with a lot of different clients. One of the challenges that I currently have at the moment, people talk about niching. And I made a decision years ago I wasn't going to niche. I didn't want to be an expert just in one particular industry. For me, my niche is doing business with people who can pay me the money that I would like to be paid. And I don't care what industry they're in. Um, my portfolio clients is very diverse in terms of what they do. And I'm very grateful for that. Eric, you mentioned about taking the time out to go to a hotel room and get clarity on everything. How, what does that do for you after you spend those few hours of asking those three questions? What does that give you after? Well, I, I think I think it's very easy for people to get caught working in their business. Every day it's answering emails, it's phone calls, it's business development, it's delivering the training, whatever your, your business is. I think every so often we just need to be able to take a step back and have a look at working on the business. And that's what that quarterly review does for me. It just allows me to take a step back and go, is it working in the way I want it to be working right now? And, and interesting, what I find with my business is I have two days training coming up Thursday and Friday of this week. And then I have three weeks when I'm pretty much off and unavailable to people. One of the weeks I'm going to be away one of the weeks I plan just to potter around the house, just things that I want to catch up on. But then this first of those three weeks, I have a couple of meetings and that's it. The rest of it is all about me learning to learning again how to slow down. Because we end up running at fast paces and, and I'm sure you've experienced it as well. For me, the last five or six weeks have involved working Saturdays and Sundays, whether I've been training or preparing materials for what I was going to be doing on the Monday and Tuesday. So I need to be able to get that balance right because if it isn't right, what will happen is at some stage I will stand in front of a client and I won't deliver what I need to deliver and I will let them down and in doing so I let myself down. So that's why I do the reviews. 100%. It's, it's very interesting. It's something I'm going to probably implement now. It's very good just getting away, even getting out of your office, your own space or going somewhere new I think can be good for the mind as well. Um, What? challenges do you see when you say let's say you go into an organization and they have a sales team of 10 people and they're pitching or they're making phone calls what are some of the pitfalls you see them when they're doing their pitches what are the biggest mistakes you could see well the big thing if you go back to what we said earlier about it all being about the audience on occasions working with sales teams one of the big challenges is they want to talk about their product they want to talk about their service they want to talk about who they are and what they do and with respect, clients couldn't care less about us. They only care about the problems we can solve for them. They only care about the ways in which we can help them. When I'm doing the day's training on Persuade on Purpose, there is a point when I talk about the ways not to open. And I talk about the big, long-winded, introductory open that some people sometimes use, where you're inclined to give your audience every bit of information about yourself. And I have a very quick example where I... I say to people, we're going to play the so what game. And I give the audience a series of sentences about me. And they have to say so what after each of them. And they walk away going, God, yeah, you're right. I don't care about who you are. I don't care about your company. I don't care about your product or service. Only, we only, our clients only care about how we can help them. Oh, please. Only care about how we can help them. And what I think it means is 
there are times when we need to be able to just to take a step back, forget about what we do and look at what the client is experiencing. And at this moment in this country, with the economy doing as well as it is, one of the big challenges that many organisations have is retention of staff or staff engagement. And I think if you can go into any organisation right now and you can demonstrate how what you do or if I could demonstrate how what I do might help to retain staff or engage staff, I think some organisations would bite your hand off. If you could if you could demonstrate that in a tangible way, I think some organisations would bite your hand off at this moment in time. Absolutely. Um, and Eric, what's next? Are you going to continue on this journey of coaching? Is it worldwide? You mentioned earlier that you've been abroad. Is <clears throat> travelling a bit, big aspect of what you'd like to do? Or Yes. Now, it's getting the balance right. And for me, it's all about balance right now. I want to experience new cultures. I find it very interesting, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to, to Irish people or English people, or native English speakers for that matter. But some of the people that I work with who are most receptive to the ideas that I share and benefit most from them because of it are people who are not native English speakers. I've done work in Malta. I've done work in Croatia. I've done work in France. I've worked with people in Brazil, China, different parts of the world. And it's fascinating to see how they take on board some of the ideas and benefit from doing so. So, yeah, do I want to more, do more traveling? Yes. I was fortunate enough to be in France last year. Um, as I said to you, when I'm finished here, I have a call with uh, somebody in Serbia about a conference that we're going to be speaking at in October. Um, there's a possibility that I could be back in Malta later on this year. And it's just looking at how I expand those opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it is part of what I want to do. And are you big on going to a lot of the conferences and seeing other speakers or what's your opinion on what's the I've, market? I will have to be careful what I say. And you don't have I, to what, mention names. What I mean by that is, is this, Tom. I, I think a lot of people go to listen to a speaker and they go, oh, I can't wait to hear what the speaker has to say. I, on the other hand, go to listen to somebody speak and I sit back and I go, capture my attention or I'm not going to engage with you. And... It's possibly a little bit unfair of me to do that. But the reason I do it is because I think that as speakers, we have a responsibility to disrupt our audience's thinking. And that's not just in the content that we share, but but in the manner in which we share it. And if somebody stands there, we go back to what you said earlier, if somebody stands there and they're just reading off slides, why the hell don't they just give us a, a printout of the slides, let us have a look at them, and then just do a questions and answer session? So it is about being able to capture people's attention. Um, are there many speakers today that would blow me away? If I'm honest, probably not. It's a bit like, you know, if you ever... Last year, coming up to Christmas time, I did the Gaiety Theatre's stand-up comedy course. And it was great crack. Met some wonderful people there. But what happens is now, whenever I watch you know, any of the comedians on TV... Because of the coaching we got there, you can see the jokes being set up. So it has, it, it almost diminishes the, the value of the joke, as it were. And to a certain extent, my view of speakers is tainted because of that. That said, my favourite speaker at the moment is a guy by the name of Frederick Harron. Very, very successful speaker. There's a particular talk that he delivers that you can have a look at on YouTube. It's 
26 minutes long. It's what is creativity. And without fail, is one of my favourite talks at this moment in time. Brilliant. Um, any listeners, if they're looking for tips or to improve their pitches or their public speaking, maybe it's just getting them front, up in front of their colleagues or a team, two, four people, whatever it is. Uh, what tools? You've mentioned that video. Is there anything else just a starting point for them? Big thing is getting really clear about who your audience is, getting really clear about what you want your audience to do when you have finished delivering your pitch or presentation, and number three, getting really clear about the message you want people to take away. Very often, I find that people get the three of them wrong or don't get them as right as they should do. I was doing a bit of work with a guy last year, and he was going over to Boston in July of last year and he was going to be presenting to his senior board of his very very large organization and we spent almost a two-hour session just looking at audience objective and in his case doing a bit of brainstorming of what potentially could go into his talk i remember at the end of two hours we were clear about whose audience was and i went away and i came back the following week and as soon as he walked in he went eric he said forget about what i said last week about that audience he said i'm going to change the names we said i only have to convince bill I said, who's Bill? He said, he's the senior vice president of X. If I can convince him, he'll get everybody else on board. That, to me, is real learning. That somebody now that clear about who they want to actually present to. You mentioned before to me, and I think it's actually in the book, um, would you tell the story about the company who were worked with you for a small period of time and they went to pitch for business and they actually got a massive contract out of it? <laughs> yeah, I had a... Very lucky. I had a guy about this age, about seven years ago, and he got in touch. He wanted help with a presentation, and he said up to me up front, he said, we're not winning the business. We're the new kids on the block. All we want to do is make a really good impression so that in four years' time, when this contract gets renewed, that we might have a chance then. So in fairness to him, he was very open to trying new things. He was very open to being different. And the first thing that we did was we got rid of PowerPoint because we knew everybody else would use PowerPoint. And the nature of what this organization does is they, they, they're in the software industry. So we wanted to create something that was very, very different. And we did, but also the guy was open to allowing me to coach him. And not just coach him, but to coach him in what he had to do with the rest of his team. Because this was a team presentation. And as you well know, you could have some guy who does all the work, very well prepared. And you have somebody else who comes in as part of the team. And they screw it up spectacularly. So he coached everybody on what they had to do, what they would say, when they would stop, the whole lot. Went and delivered the presentation. He rang me the next day and he went, Eric, clients seem to like it. Thanks a million. Job done. That was it. And I forgot about it. A month later, I got a phone call. And he went, Eric, I don't know what's happened, but we've just won a contract worth a million euro. Now, Tom, I'm not standing in front of anybody saying the work that I did in the presentation won them the contract. What they can do for the client won the contract. But what I am saying is that while a really good presentation won't guarantee you in the business, a bad presentation will pretty much ensure you don't. My job is to help people create really good presentations. And just more on the tools aspect, Eric, like when you just mentioned PowerPoint there, and I just mentioned earlier, I don't use it anymore. And there's a great TED talk I mm. watched and it was called, I was recommend to watch it. And it's called Death by PowerPoint. And it changed, it opened up my mind and I was like, wow, I'm never using this again. You mentioned Dale Carnegie earlier or Brian Tracy, sorry, pardon mm. me, by the way. Is there any 
books out there if any listeners listen that you'd say go grab it or are you not big on recommendations of books <laughs> well obviously i'm going to recommend persuade on purpose absolutely yeah which we have and in fairness one of the things i like about that book and, and yes i am very very biased but <laughs> there are a number of people who've bought it and use it as a resource that they go to every single time People have said to me, Eric, it's with me all the time if I'm asked to give a presentation. And in fairness, Tom, it's not just for presentations. The principles apply to most sales situations. They apply if we're sending an email to somebody. They apply if it's a face-to-face or a phone call or whatever it is. It's been clear about what you want to do, and this acts as a guide. But are there other books? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a wonderful lady in the States by the name of Nancy Duart, D-U-A-R-T-E. She's very, very good in terms of slides and how to use them properly. I believe her company were responsible for the slides that Al Gore used during his movie An Inconvenient Truth when he was talking about climate change all those years ago. Uh, down through the years, there's been plenty of books that I've used. I've been down, since given many of them away, but I think one was something like, I think it was Stand Like Lincoln, Speak Like Churchill or something like that. Um, Some of the world champions of public speaking, like Darren LaCroix and Ed Tate and Craig Valentine, they've produced books or they've produced CDs. Well worth tapping into some of the knowledge and information that they have. Um, There's people like Alan Stevens and Graeme Davies who are very, very successful professional speakers who've written books and presentations. And ultimately, for me, there isn't one book that I would say, that's the one you have to have. It'd be, get a few of them and pick out the pieces that work for you. We'll never get away fully from the idea that a presentation or a pitch or a speech is subjective. What you like, I might not like, and vice versa. But it's been able to learn as much as possible that you can decide what are the pieces you want to insert into a talk because you believe they will give you the best chance of connecting with your audience and that will give you the best chance of getting them to buy into your idea, your message, your product, your service, whatever it is. You mentioned, uh, I'm conscious of time now, Eric, but you're, you mentioned earlier about technology and communication. In your opinion, is technology good now or have we, as human beings, lost <laughs> on our communication or... I, th- I think the answer to that is yes and no. I think there's parts of technology that are absolutely brilliant. I, I was saying to somebody yesterday, when I was, my, my kids are 27 and 26. When I was their age, if I was going out with friends, you nearly had to notify people a week in advance to make sure everybody got the message to make sure everybody would be available on the night. By contrast, my daughter could be going out on a Saturday night and meeting friends at 7 o'clock. And at six o'clock, the message still hasn't come through as to where they're going to meet up. But that's what they've become used to. And as part of this, I mean, there was two conversations that jumped out of me not terribly long ago. One was my, my father, who's still alive, was having a conversation with one of my daughters. And he said to her, he said, you don't know how to communicate. And her reply was, Grandad, we do. We just communicate in a very different way. That said, the idea of speaking to somebody face-to-face, number one, it'll never go away. And I do think that the younger generation today are in danger of missing a trick because if they spent all of the time communicating through devices, 
when they then have to go and stand in front of somebody for an interview, when they have to stand in front of somebody to sell a product, a service, an idea, to generate funding for a, for a business, it gets an awful lot harder. And it's been able to apply both. It's been able to use technology wisely and at the same time having the confidence, the skills and the knowledge to stand in front of anybody and have a conversation with them where you know you're getting your point across and you're influencing them to take the actions you'd like them to take. Brilliant. Um, listen, I'm, co- I'm conscious of time, so a couple of things. I can't wait to listen back to this podcast because there's some key bites of information anyone that's listened there as well. Um, get the book, Persuade on Purpose, um, and I can't wait to re- finish it off and read the rest of it. Um, just we, we normally finish, Eric, on a kind of like a quick fire round, and I'm going to put you on the spot here now. Um, Favourite book? Persuade on Purpose for okay. obvious reasons, Brilliant. but I'm going to give you a second one if you don't mind. Um, from a sales perspective, given that selling has been very important to me, uh, there's a book called Selling to Big Companies by a lady called Jill Conrath. And I have found that to be invaluable down through the years. Really have. Um, favourite movie? Favourite movie is Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot. Yeah. That's, you're on old school. Is I'm, that a black and white it one? It is a black and white one. It is a black and white one. I'm yeah. nearly going to say who's in, who's in that movie. Jack Lennon, Jack Tony Curtis yeah. and Marilyn Monroe. Well, very good. Yeah. Um, favourite place for a pint? <laughs> it can be Ireland or anywhere you've been. I knew you were going to ask me this question and I cannot remember the last time I had a pint. Um, I'm, I'm going to slightly deviate from the answer. When I do have a drink, I, I drink whiskey. Okay. And um, I remember being in the museum in Edinburgh, the whiskey museum over there, and I came across a whiskey there called um, Octomore. And I'm not going to bore you with the details around parts per million and all of that that it, it contains, but it's said to be the peatiest whiskey. And I know over here we're not big into peat whiskies, but I absolutely love peaty whiskies. So my favourite place for a glass of that is probably actually at home, sitting on one of the big armchairs, listening to a little bit of music. So next time we're on, I have to get you a whiskey down instead of the water in front of us. Um, and you're not a coffee drinker because I've met I'm, you many times. I'm not, but actually it might, I, I love um, Balfs in Westbury. I think it's a fabulous coffee shop. It's a fabulous place for lunch. And there's been a number of Sunday mornings when... My wife and I would go in there and we'd have a bite to eat, stroll around the shops when before uh, the city centre gets busy. It's a lovely place to start today. Brilliant. And Eric, where can people f- uh, find you? Um, Eric at arcspeakingandtraining.com. Eric Fitz7 on Twitter. You'll get me on LinkedIn. And the website is arcspeakingandtraining.com as well. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a no, pleasure. Tom, thank Episode you. Episode number four. And guys... Listen to this podcast because the value, Eric says, and get his book. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you. Cheers.